The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. What I propose to do is, like I've been doing recently, give you a kind of an overview of the period and then zero in on a couple things that I think are, are really worth studying a little more carefully. Um, on the front cover, there's the overview, and then we're going to get a little more in-depth uh, on the inner pages. Um, in the 20th century, beginning really in the 19th century, moving on into the 20th century, we're going to talk about the onslaught of modernity. Uh, the modern world was encroaching on the Christian faith, and there are three great kind of attacks or, or points of pressure that Christianity was facing. They're listed there. German higher criticism, um, Darwinism, and liberalism, those three. And Christianity was needing to deal with them. They're needing to deal with, with the pressure that each of these brought to bear. For example, German higher criticism, there's the Tübingen School of Bible Study that started in the 18th century, or 19th century, early 19th century with F.C. Bauer. And they started uncovering various things, uh, coupling uh, some a scientific methodology with some knowledge from archaeology and some other things, uh, comparative studies of texts, uh, and started to create um, certain schools, certain types of criticism of the Bible, what they call higher criticism. There were various types of criticism. There was text criticism, which is something that everyone needs to deal with. The fact is that we don't have the original manuscripts of any book of the Bible. We just have copies, manuscripts. And so you have to compare one manuscript to the next in order to get a good sense of what the New and the Old Testament are saying. The Old Testament and New Testament, different situations. Okay, But that's text criticism and everybody's got to deal with that because God has providentially removed the original autographs from us. And good thing too, because we're little idolaters, every last one of us. And if we had the original letter to the Romans, we'd all want to go on a pilgrimage and touch it or bow down to it or something. Maybe we wouldn't. I would hope not. But God has just seen to it that we have no original manuscripts, so instead we have lots of copies. Text criticism is one thing. But then there's other types of criticism. Form criticism, uh, for example, in which they're trying to see patterns as they're reading within the text. And some things started to be uncovered uh, as they use these techniques which created serious doubts in the minds of people about the uh, the inspiration and authority of Scripture. For example, there's the JEDP theory of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, what we call the books of Moses. They noticed that the names of God changed. Sometimes it was Yahweh. Sometimes it was Elohim. And then you had the priestly code and all the rules around the cult, around the sacrificial system. And then there was the book of Deuteronomy, which had to have been written after they entered the promised land because they're predictions and prophecies. Why do I say had to be written? Because it's coming from an anti-supernatural basis. The German higher critics were anti-supernaturalists. So prophecy is not possible. And so basically they're saying Moses didn't write the first five books of the Bible. They're just different authors and they're looking for seams the way that the thing was put together. And as this kind of JEDP theory and other things started coming up, it made its way across the ocean into the U.S. and started to spread. And what it did was it sowed seeds of doubt about the Scriptures. All right. And then there was Darwinism. Darwin uh, was uh, a naturalist, a, a British naturalist. He went on the Voyage, the HMS Beagle, and went to the Galapagos Islands, started to notice some things, some traits and tendencies among certain species, and started to develop his theory of evolution, namely that um, uh, all of life has evolved through slight genetic changes. Uh, what brought those changes on uh, would be anything from a desire to reach berries on a higher tree and you need to reach up higher, etc., or various other environmental issues create a, 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 a circumstance where certain genetic advantages would enable a species to survive and the genetic disadvantages would not um, allow them to survive. It's called survival of the fittest. All of this developed in the mid-19th century but really started to take hold in America toward the end of the 19th century. Well, this obviously was a serious threat to the biblical record of creation. 
and we're dealing with it even right up to the pre present day. Uh, and people are still wrestling with Darwinism. The third is liberalism. And liberalism is, is just a, a certain approach to the scriptures. Again, the basis of it is anti-supernatural, but it has a more positive approach, an optimistic view of human nature, for example, that we are basically good, society is basically good, things are basically going in a good direction. What we need to do is kind of clean up certain social ills. If we can get out there and clean up poverty or deal with certain things that people were struggling with in the late 1800s, um, that uh, all the problems will be solved. There's a kind of an underlying utopianism to liberalism, a sense that, that if we could just get a certain, certain things fixed, everything would be perfect. We'd be living in a, in a paradise. And so there was a general optim optimism because they, they looked on human beings as generally good. If we could just deal with a few things, we're going to head in the right direction. So liberalism, fatherhood of God, the universal fatherhood of God. God is father to every human being on the face of the earth. Universal brotherhood of man. All human beings are brothers. If they just could get along and know that, we wouldn't have so many problems, this kind of thing. Liberalism. Along with this came the social gospel, Walter Rauschenbusch and some others, that basically the essence of Christianity is doing good to the neighbor, dealing with social problems. All right, this is modernity, the onslaught of modernity. Along with this came the era of crusades. This is not the crusades, but these are social crusades. These are things that were going on in America and in Europe. Uh, evangelism would be one type of thing. D.L. Moody, some of the tent crusades that he did with Ira Sankey, uh, who was his right-hand man, a singer. And they would sing songs and have revivals and crusades, just picking up on that Second Great Awakening sawdust trail approach to evangelism. D.L. Moody was a shoe salesman in Boston, I believe, and then set up in Chicago and just was just world-renowned evangelist, very successful. He preached a simple gospel of the three R's, Ruin through sin, redemption through Christ, regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Anybody could understand that. And uh, he, was, he was a very powerful and effective uh, speaker. Um, one of the things that he was uh, very instrumental in starting was the student volunteer movement, which had as its watchword, this is, this is a bunch of college students, had as its watchword the evangelization of the world in this generation. They were very passionate about this. And they were very influential in the kicking off of the 20th century uh, modern missions movement. Very significant, very important group. And then there are other evangelists like, for example, Billy Sunday, one of my favorite people from church history. I'm not a big fan of his doctrines and his methodology, but boy, he was entertaining. Uh, he was a Sandlot baseball player and uh, just powerful preacher and uh, uh, a bitter foe of modernism. Uh, he was a fundamentalist, revivalist preacher and uh, led crusades all over the U.S. So evangelism, very important. Missions we already touched on, and we're going to be focusing on missions, so I don't want to say much about that. John Mott, John R. Mott, was the leader of the student volunteer movement. There was the Haystack Revival. I mean, a group of students uh, in Northfield, Massachusetts, prayed near a haystack in a rainstorm, prayed for the evangelization of the world. And that's where the, the whole student volunteer movement and the, the modern missions movement in the U.S., at least, uh, really got its strength from that revival. There are also social causes, the social gospel, for example. This is where you get soup kitchens and the Salvation Army, the YMCA, doing work in the city. You see, uh, in the late 19th century, America and Europe became more and more urban, less and less uh, rural, more people in cities, immigration, um, and there, there would be slums and there would be social ills along with that. And churches would want to get involved in that and want to try to clean it up. Well, um, I'm not going to get into fundamentalism versus modernism now at all because that's going to be the focal point of most of our time once I'm done with this overview. That's a major struggle that uh, defined the latter part of the 19th century and on through, in my opinion, the entire 20th century right up till today. Um, so we're still wrestling with that. Interestingly, something came along that utterly destroyed liberalism, pure liberalism, as I've described it to you. And you know what it was? What was it that destroyed the optimism of the basic goodness of man? World War I. You look at World War I and you just are left scratching your head in utter bewilderment uh, at what that was all about. And we still don't really know what that was all about, but I'll tell you this much. After you talk about one million soldiers being killed at Verdun, at one battle that lasted for nine months, um, I mean, it was an evil, evil war. It's hard to describe. Obviously, every war has evil in it or is perhaps flat-out evil. But World War I was especially bewildering because nobody really knew what it was about. It just was a meat grinder that kept sucking men to their deaths, one after the other. And, and it just didn't seem to have any reason. 
It was just some alliances and some minor assassination occurred. And next thing you know, all these nations are involved. And, and it was a hideous war. There was no chance of survival. You're running across no man's land and getting gunned down by machine guns. And it was just awful. Furthermore, some of the strategies were just demonic. The Germans determined they were going to knock um, France out of the war by uh, this Battle of Verdun. They were going to measure in a certain number of German soldiers. They had an overwhelming advantage at that point, but rather than breaking through the line, they reserved some of their men to just keep the battle going and bleed France white. That's what they wanted to try to do. So they're managing the battle by killing people, you know, measuring in a certain number of German soldiers to match the French soldiers so that more and more would get put in and they would just... They just felt that they had more soldiers, ultimately. That's hideous. It's demonic. And at the end of that, I mean, uh, uh, Europe is in ruins. Um, people are bewildered. Um, you know, World War II really came up out of World War I, frankly. I and mean, it was no, not hard at all to see the connection between that. Um, and the utopian sense of progress every day in every way. We're getting better and better. Whoa. We've had some, we had a bad four years there, you know, and not in any way were we getting better. It's horrible, as a matter of fact. And so there seemed to be a sense of the evil of man. And right around then, 1919, Karl Barth wrote his commentary on Romans. Um, and that began the neo-Orthodox movement. The whole thing with liberalism was the imminence, the immediate, immediacy of God. God is here. He's in culture. He's around us. He's in us. And that's what makes everything good, you see. Neo-Orthodoxy was looking at the transcendence of God. You can't know Him. You can't get close to Him. Anything touched by humanity is evil. And so we need a transcendent God to bring His reality down to us. Neo-Orthodoxy then was a, a strong corrective and rebuttal to liberalism. Karl Barth, uh, Booner, and, and, and the other B, what's his name? Boltman. Um, Neo-Orthodox, but there were significant problems with Neo-Orthodoxy as well. Because they believed that everything touched by human beings was evil, that included the Word of God. Because the Word of God was written by people. So you're kind of left drifting. You know, What are you going to turn to? How are you going to know? And, and that was the whole thing. Karl Barth wrote huge volumes on systematic theology, but because there's an intrinsic rejection of the truthfulness of the Word of God, you really wonder how you can say so much with that kind of certainty. Uh, Boltman, for example, is trying to demythologize the Bible, trying to go through and find all those myths and get rid of them. Again, we start heading toward the anti-supernaturalism as well. And then the fifth major area to discuss is the amazing advance of missions, and we're going to focus on that. So that's kind of an overview of the 20th century. I could have talked about Roman Catholicism, Vatican II, which came around the time I was born, made significant changes <clears throat> in Roman Catholicism. Frankly, it just led them toward liberalism in a lot of regards. Uh, you know, the Mass was permitted to be said in the vernacular. A lot of changes around Vatican II, but the changes weren't necessarily good theologically. All right, that's the overview. Any questions about those things? Believe me, we could, have, we could spend incredible amounts of time on each of these topics, but I really want to zero in on fundamentalism versus modernism and on... Um, the uh, amazing advance of missions. Now, as I said, Darwinism was making an advance in America. Um, you know, when Darwin first uh, proposed his theory, uh, the opposition did not come from, from religious people. Who was it that first opposed Darwin's theory? What category of people? Not names, but what category of people? Yeah, scientists, but what kinds of scientists in particular? Well, they were paleontologists those who had control of the fossil record, all right? those who knew what fossils there were to be had. And they said Darwinism cannot be true because there is no fossil record of a gradual transformation of species. You can gather all of one species' fossils in one place, all of another species' fossils in another place, all of a third species, and they're there, and there's a variance within them, but there is no evidence whatsoever of a gradual transformation. Realize if Darwinism is true, we're looking at a constant evolution, a, a kind of a, an integration over time of, of um, species just evolving, right? Isn't that the case? And so we should see not what we call the missing link, but we should see a billion missing links. Kind of like a dimmer switch on a light, you know, just going all the time, ever brighter. A ramp, you know what I'm saying? Well, Darwin acknowledged that this was a problem, but he felt that paleontology, the science of fossils, was young. And over the next hundred years or so, we would see more and more evidence of the truth of his 
doctrine. Well, guess what? We have not. And so now, we've got Stephen Jay Gould. Ever heard of him? Stephen Jay Gould is a Harvard paleontologist. Here he is. I didn't know he had a beard. I, th I think that's new. Anyway, he is probably the leading spokesman, uh, popular spokesman of Darwinism. No, of evolution, because he's not a Darwinist anymore. Frankly, hardly anybody is a Darwinist, because the evidence... The evidence just does not lend toward Darwin's theories. It doesn't mean evolution's been rejected. I'm just telling you that Darwin is seen as a kind of an early precursor of a more intelligent theory of evolution. What is Stephen Jay Gould's theory of evolution? Punctuated, punctuated equilibrium. That's what he calls it. Punctuated equilibrium. What does that mean? Well, for the most part, everything stays the same, but then occasionally a meteorite will hit the earth or there'll be a famine or whatever, and then boom, you get a lot of evolution all at once. And then it stays the same again for long periods of time. Well, I'm sorry, that's not evolution. That's sounding more and more like creation, right? Species just appear fully formed and, and never change much. Now, within a species, of course, there's very genetic variation. If you get two tall, a tall man and a tall woman married, they're going to have tall kids. There's a genetic aspect here. You can work on, 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 uh, sweet potatoes and, and you can, you can get the sugar content to a certain maximum amount by just fudging with the with the genes right uh mendeleev and some of these other working with with uh, peas you know you can you can make a um a, a navel orange with no seeds in it well how does it reproduce the, the thing is it's been fudged genetically we can do that kind of stuff we can graft plants together and we can work with it but the thing is it's all within a certain range it plateaus after a while you can't make uh the the sweet potato, five times sweeter. There's a limit to what you can do. And after a while, it tends to, if you leave it alone, it tends to go back to where it was before genetically. Uh, so that's, you know, we've, we've learned some things about, about genetics. The fact of the matter is, Darwin's theory looks plausible when you don't know much science. But the more you study, the more things you learn, whether about fossils or about microbiology, you know, about DNA structure, the more you realize how utterly impossible it is. And so there's a great quote, I think it's Francis Bacon, a little science is strange, is strange as a man from God. A lot of science brings him back. And that's going to be important for our study tonight on fundamentalism and, and modernism. Because I think Darwinism is a little science. And I'm not afraid at all of any... I think fundamentalists made a mistake by sticking their head in the sand, by getting away from science, by getting away from popular culture, pulling inward because they were intimidated. They were afraid. Um, but they should have just been patient. They weren't wrong about the Scriptures. The scripture could defend itself, but it's just that science was making big, bold claims and nobody could refute them and people got intimidated. They were afraid. And I think we still backpedal a little bit. I want to recommend, a, uh, this is a book, Refuting Evolution, if you want to get hold of this. Jim, do you know how to get a hold of this? Oh, Dean Cornstubble gave, you know. I, you know, there's just a lot of good work being done out there. This one? This is Sarfati, Jonathan Sarfati, Ph.D., forward by Ken Ham, who's uh, everybody knows about Ken Ham these days. They, they're they're starting a, a museum uh, in northern Kentucky or in Cincinnati. I'm not sure. It's right in that same. It's in Kentucky, near Cincinnati, uh, and it's a creation um, creation uh, museum. Anyway, um, I really would urge you to read, for example, Chuck Colson's recent book, How Now Shall We Live? He's got four or five chapters, short chapters on evolution. And it's powerful. He just deals with it. To me, the strongest arguments against evolution have to do with where life came from itself, life itself. I'm not talking about how from apes to man. But the fact of the matter is, how do you go from non-living chemicals to living cells? That's a huge jump. And it's never been done. Don't believe what they say when they say that we've created amino acids and proteins. Don't you believe it. Because what happens is these things get destroyed almost as soon as they're made. You have to have carefully controlled situations. And you don't need just one or two of these things. You need truckloads of it to end up with a living cell, for example. And they get destroyed by ultraviolet light. or They're very fragile. And so, therefore, I've called the evolution, <laughs> the evolution of life, do you all ever make a, a house of cards? You know, you go like that. Did you ever do that? How high did you get, Joyce? Did you ever get not, high, not very high? I once got up to like seven or eight stories. Um, you can do different different things. You can do the flat one where they're kind of teepeed like that going across. Ever do that? Or you can do the kind of bigger structure. It helps if you glue them together. That, you know, <laughs> that doesn't count though, does it? That's not really a true house of cards. Anyway, imagine, if you will, a house of cards which is an inverted pyramid. Okay? 
in a windstorm. Or there's this big, big, you know, one of those like dramatic fans like that. And you're building and putting one building block on and letting it go. There it goes. And there's another one. And that's what the evolution of life is like, in my opinion, scientifically. But basically, you're going from simple to ever more incredibly complex, and all the rules of nature are against you. Okay? It screams creation. It just does. And Crick himself, Watson and Crick, the DNA guy, he said, what you have to remember as a microbiologist is that you're constantly dealing with things that seem to have been created for a purpose. He was a strict atheist and an evolutionist. Seeking to have been created for a purpose. Best example I've ever seen of Romans chapter 1, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Got to hold that ugly truth down. You know, God made it. God created it. It's so obvious. You got to push it down. And that's what scientists are doing all the time with evolution. All right, I could go on and on about this, but I just think that we should not be intimidated anymore. We should go out there and start to challenge some things. Philip Johnson's done good work on this. Darwin on trial. So if you want to know more about this, talk to me. I'm very passionate about this. Well, let's look back at history and look at, this, at the sad history of what, what the church did do with evolution and how it retreated and how it pulled back. Yes. Yeah. Well, maybe make a link. Answers in Genesis. All one word. Answersingenesis.org. So make a, make a link already to that. That would be great. All right. Let's look at what happened. The sad story. All right. Darwinism is making advance. But it hadn't really touched the church. There was a sense in American evangelicals, American evangelicalism itself, that we are kind of untouched by all those European errors. German higher criticism, you know, atheism and all that kind of stuff that was fomenting the enlightenment philosophy that we talked about in the past. And Darwinism. That's them. They're just messing up over there in Europe. And they were. And where is Europe at right now spiritually? Woo! It's a wasteland. An absolute wasteland. But at any rate, I mean, those ideas fomented. Ideas are powerful things, folks. Very powerful. That's why Paul says, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Next point, we demolish arguments and every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we are ready to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. That's a war of ideas, is what it is. A war of words and ideas. And Christians should fight that battle. We should be out there on abortion. We should be out there on evolution. We should be out there on these things. But realize, all of them are just kind of like these little gremlins that come and attack the central thing, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Christ. So, basically what happened is there was a sense of, in American evangelicalism, we're untouched, we're safe, we're in our citadel. But it wasn't true. The ideas were coming across, and they were starting to infiltrate, and they were starting to pollute. And in 1873, at the uh, uh, on the floor of the Evangelical Alliance, they were having a, a, a convention on the floor. There was an unscheduled debate because this guy, Reverend James McCosh, who was a Scottish um, common sense realist, was attempting to reconcile Darwinism in the Bible, and he sparked the debate. What he said was on Scripture and science, both Scripture and science reveal order in the world. The one is appointed by God, the other discovered by man. Now here we've got the key you know, scene that starts to pull apart in, a, in American evangelicalism. Science and the world and all the stuff we can know and then religion on the other side. They start to go their separate ways. And that's devastating when that starts to happen. But this guy said we've got... And, and I'll tell you something. You ought to look at this. Stephen Jay Gould. This is World Magazine. You ever seen this? Of a Christian, Christian form of time or Newsweek. Um, basically, what he does, what Gould does, in his latest book, Rocks of Ages, Science and Religion in the Fullness of Life, basically what he says is they inhabit or should inhabit totally different spheres of influence. Science on the one side deals with all the factual stuff we can really know and deal with through our five senses. Religion, on the other hand, deals with well, matters of the heart, I guess. Um, you know, he doesn't leave us much. I mean, you know, the morality, but it's debatable because there's lots of religions, um, this kind of thing. But there, there's just different spheres of influence. That's what Gould's arguing for. Well, that's just the old fundamentalism, modernism stuff. You stay in your corner and we'll have all the rest, right? Well, he doesn't leave you much. Um, good article. You ought to read it. But that's about what they were saying here. Darwinism making serious headway in major institutions of higher learning. They're starting to teach this stuff. Um, 
soon there came a separation between science and faith. Remember what we talked about last time or two times ago? German liberalism under Rischel, Albert Rischel, was able to make the split. Religion operated in the world of the spiritual, not the historic. It doesn't matter whether Jesus ever lived or died. What matters is what effect it has on you. So they're wide open now for science. They're ready to go now. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're able to make a synthesis then between Christianity and evolution because there's no problem with that. They're just two different realms. Well, meanwhile, some others are disagreeing. Charles Hodge from Princeton Theological Seminary uh, said this in a book called What is Darwinism? He wrote, What is Darwinism? It is atheism. That's what he wrote. And he said, It is development and intellectual process guided by God or is it a blind process of unintelligible, unconscious force which knows no end and adopts no means? Naturalistic Darwinism is atheistic, isn't it? Everything just kind of clicks out. Or deistic, I guess, in, in that all the things were locked in there. I believe that it's impossible to synthesize Darwinism and theism. We can talk about that. People try to do that. Try to say, well, why can't we have a theistic Darwinism? You know, a theistic evolution. We can talk about that another time, but I think it's impossible. Hodge knew it from the start. All right, but then you've got the racial side. So basically, we have a choice. Christians are facing a choice now, and it becomes a fork in the road historically. You can go with Hodge and basically say Darwinism is irreconcilable to Christianity. It's a new form of unbelief. Therefore, it's also bad science, since true science uh, is from God. Meanwhile, the modernists following Rischel will say Darwin is or Darwinism is irrefutable. Have you ever heard that kind of thing? Basically, this is not a theory. This is fact. It can't be questioned. There is nothing... I mean, it's just open and shut. It's ironclad. It's as certain as the law of gravitation. Well, is it? There's an awful lot of PR going that way, but is it? That's the whole thing. But it's irrefutable, and so basically Christians just need to get used to it. Evolution is true, and we just need to find a synthesis, a way to put the whole thing together. So they had to make a choice. Now, Henry Ward Beecher who was a popular um, preacher at the time, maybe the best-known preacher. His sister was Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Little Tom's Ca- Uncle Tom's Cabin. Sorry, Uncle Tom's Cabin. The Beecher family, very influential family. Um, he was a trailblazer in modernity, modern modernist preaching. Basically, he said, while we are taught by the scientists in truths that belong to the sensual nature, five-sense nature, while we are taught by the economists of things that belong to the social nature, we need the Christian ministry to teach us those things which are invisible. You see the bifurcation. You know, We've got realms. We've got different areas. We don't venture in theirs and they don't come over in ours. That's what Beecher said. Um, he said, The oaks of civilization have evolved since biblical times. Should we then go back and talk about the acorns? Woo! Basically, then you're reading the Bible as a bunch of acorns. That, that's what they did way back when in that civilization. But we've come a long way since then. We don't need to go back to the acorns. So he's talking about a progressive, enlightened, intelligent Christianity, which was attractive to the urbane, educated type person. You see what I'm saying? It looked good and it made you feel good because you're smart and intelligent and you know up on things, you know, uh, and you could accept all the latest trends and theories from Europe. I think often about the uh, Emperor's New Clothes, the story of the Emperor's New Clothes. You guys know what that story is about? The Emperor's New Clothes is a story written by um, Hans Christian Andersen. And basically it went like this, that um, I forget the details, but basically some uh, uh, tailor made an outfit for the Emperor that was basically non-existent. And what he said is that only people who are fit for their jobs can see the clothing. If you are not fit for your job, you won't see the clothing. And so everyone was saying, oh, what an incredible suit. How beautiful it is. How wonderful. There's no evidence about it. But because everyone else is around, there's a societal pressure. You're caving in. And everybody. And finally, a little child says, he's naked. <laughs> you know, you're not wearing anything. Well, that's the way I look at some of the, you know, Darwinism, for example. Where's the proof? Where's the evidence? It's a theory. Seems plausible, but where are the fossil evidence? But nobody's, nobody wants to admit that they're not fit. They're not up on these things. They haven't read it. Descent of man, you know, and all this kind of thing. And so it's like, have you read it? Well, yeah. What do you think? Well, I, I think it's great. It's incredible. So it starts to pull on you. There's a societal pressure to go in that direction. 
Now, what is modernism? Three key points of modernism. Okay, three key points of modernism. Number one, adaptation of religion to modern culture. Number two, cultural immanentism. God reveals himself in the development of human culture. God is all over human culture. This sounds a little bit like illiberalism, a little bit. Very similar. Number three, religiously based progressivism. Human society moving steadily toward the realization of the kingdom of God. It is like liberalism. Well, that's because it's liberalism's child. Right? So basically the idea is that we're going to try to take religion, namely Christianity, and adapt it to what's going on in culture around us. What are, what are the scientists discovering? Let's take it in. Let's make it part of our faith. What's going on in, in popular culture? What are the modern social trends? Let's take that in. That's mo modernism. Okay. Over against that, we've got the fundamentalists. They started to notice the effect of German higher criticism and liberalism on some key doctrines of Christianity. And they said, wait a minute, we're losing it here. We need to earnestly contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. We need to fight and protect these things because we're losing them. Pretty soon, there is no Christianity left if you have no doctrines, no truths. And so, the fundamentals started to be published. From 1910 to 1915, there was a series of 12 paperbacks. It was a response to modernism's ever-advancing encroachment. At first, there were many enemies in these articles. There were just a series of articles. Romanism, by that we mean Catholicism. Socialism, which was started to make inroads at that point. Modern philosophy. Atheism. Eddyism, which is also known as Christian science, Mormonism. So there'd be articles written about these things. But after a while, it started to boil down to just kind of one major foe, modernism. And whereas the doctrines started to deal with all basic traditional Christian systematic theological doctrines, they started to boil down to some basic issues, fundamental truths that were being attacked by the modernists. And they came, came up with five. General Assembly, then the Presbyterian Controversy, 1910, Five fundamentals. Number one, the inerrancy of Scripture. Number two, the virgin birth of Christ. Number three, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Number four, it should say four there, uh, Christ's bodily resurrection. And number five, the historical validity of miracles. And the, the modernists were denying these. They were denying them. I'll tell you, it's, it's hard for me to, under, uh, to overstate how much a part of our present situation, even at First Baptist, these things are. I mean, it's right here. And that we've been struggling, the, not just First Baptist, but the Southern Baptists and Protestants have been struggling on this front for a hundred years. And why? Because Satan is pushing this thing. This is false doctrine. They're, it's attacking, Satan is attacking basic tenets of our faith. And so God has raised up some people to defend. There were at that time some Bible prophecy camps who would also add other things on premillennial doctrine, the premillennial return of Christ, and um, that type of thing, or deity of Christ. But these were the five basic doctrines that they were trying to defend. Now, let's look at Presbyterianism. What happened in the Presbyterian denomination? This book just blew me away. And anybody who knows what's been going on in the Southern Baptist Convention, if you don't know what happened to the Presbyterians, you won't, you won't praise God adequately for what happened in the SBC. Because they, this is called the Presbyterian Controversy by Bradley J. Longfield. This is the complete story of how Presbyterian lost the battle against modernity. They lost. Modernism. They, they fought and they lost, basically. And they split. Alright? But all the institutions, the mission board, all that stuff went liberal, basically. And what's fascinating are the characters involved in this and their views and the way they argued, and how that got repeated in the SBC controversy. Different names, same approaches. For example, why do we have to you know, be battling over minor theological issues when there are people out on the other side of the world who've never heard of Jesus Christ, the whole missions approach? We need to forget these little intermural squabblings and get out there and preach the gospel, they would say. Well, it sounds good, but give it 30 years and you don't have a gospel to preach anymore. I've seen it, you know, you read this and, and you just see what Satan did and how the inroads that he made in Presbyterianism. You guys have heard PCUSA, PCA. You know the difference. I mean, there's a big difference. All right? Well, second? Right, right. Well, that, ha that happens. And believe me, I know that there's a hierarchy of doctrines. There's some that are more central and more crucial than others. But what I'm saying is, you know, they, they were saying that those would include inerrancy of Scripture and the virgin birth and all that. They were including those as little doctrines that we don't need to squabble over. 
And I'm just saying, it wasn't long. You do that enough and you go out there with, you know, the Presbyterian Mission Board sends you out on the mission field and what message are you there to preach? You basically end up there to do social work. And that's how it ended up in the end. You're there to kind of help them with their problems. You, a little different than the, um, you know, UNICEF or, I don't know, some of the United Nations or, or any one of these other groups are just there to make things better for people physically. But you have no gospel message to preach. Well, how did the battle go? I, I mean, really would love to trace through this, this uh, struggle. But the, the whole conflict erupted with one sermon that Harry Emerson Fosdick preached. Have you ever heard of Har- Harry Emerson Fosdick? Have you ever heard of Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah? Do, 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 do. I never sing the thing. Well, I guess if we... Because I know who wrote the... It's hard for me to sing a hymn written by Harry Emerson Fosdick. But there's nothing wrong with the hymn. It's just knowing the fuller story of who the guy was that it's hard for me to sit there and sing. But if we ever choose that hymn and he's look over at me, is he singing? I'll probably be singing. I probably will. I mean, because I like the hymn, but just Fosdick. He preached a sermon on May 21st, 1922 at the First Presbyterian Church in New York City entitled, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? And the answer to the question was, within Presbyterianism, no, they didn't win. But this was the kind of this was a bombshell. It, it created a controversy. Interesting thing about Fosdick is that he really was a liberal Baptist who got called to a Presbyterian church. He was a Baptist, uh, but he became Presbyterian. Was preaching at a Presbyterian church. Interesting. Basic message is that liberals were sincere evangelicals trying to reconcile new knowledge of history, science, and religion with the old faith. They're trying to make sense of it all. Why are you attacking us? We're trying to just make sense and put it together. Fundamentalists, on the other hand, were intolerant conservatives trying to shut the doors of Christian fellowship against any who would modify their traditional viewpoints. That's what he said in his sermon. Well, God raised up J. Gresham Machen, who's one of my big heroes. I mean, he's a lot like Athanasius, in my opinion. We talked a long time ago about Athanasius, who was raised up against the Arianism controversy. Well, Machen was the guy in Presbyterianism. All right, God raised him up, in my opinion, and he had a corresponding sermon that he preached entitled, Shall Unbelief Win? All right? Shall, fun, shall the fundamentalists win was the first sermon. His answer was, Shall Unbelief Win? Because that's what he considered modernism. It was unbelief. And he wrote a book which became kind of the key book on the controversy entitled, Christianity and Liberalism. Now, think about the title. What is he saying in the title? That's right. Christianity and liberalism are two different faiths. And he was right. And he makes the case very strongly, very powerfully. Uh, that's one of the key books of the 20th century is Christianity and Liberalism, 1923. And what Machen said was, at every point, the liberal movement is in opposition to the Christian message. At every point. All right. Ultimately, as I mentioned, the Presbyterian denomination lost the battle. How they lost it is told in the story. Um, very, very interesting to see what happened, uh, especially around the missions board. I found great interest in reading what happened to the Presbyterian mission board. They started out preaching the pure gospel, and then little by little they got subverted. And in the end, um, who, who's the one that wrote The Silent Spring? Rachel Carson. She was a Presbyterian uh, missionary on the field, and she was a liberal. Uh, and a very, very powerful influence on the whole thing. You were going to say something, Brother? Machen came out of... J. Gresham Machen was a, was a professor at Princeton. That was where the hottest battle raged was over Princeton Seminary. They were trying to save Princeton from going liberal. They lost the battle and he pulled off and started Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, which is still there and still somewhat of a bastion of um, conservative Presbyterian doctrines. And Machen wrote my Greek text. Any of you who've studied Greek, Machen uh, still used the... Did you use that in Stephen? Uh, Machen uh, on Greek? Yeah, it's, it's kind of the, uh, <clears throat> the text. You can see why he'd want to study Greek. He wants to know what the Scripture says. <laughs> so, at any rate... Uh, in the middle of all this came the Scopes Monkey Trial. Scopes Monkey Trial. I've got a, a video here, a clip from a movie called Inherit the Wind. Have any of you ever seen the movie Inherit the Wind? Inherit the Wind is about the Scopes Monkey Trial. Let me tell you what happened. Basically, in the 19, early 1920s, a number of Bible Belt states passed laws against teaching Darwinism in public schools. All right, Tennessee had the strongest laws against Darwinism. Uh, Scopes was a biology teacher who decided to test the system and he taught Darwinism in Dayton, Tennessee. Right in the, the, the buckle of the Bible belt, it was called. I mean, that was, or it was, it was a fundamentalist city there, or town. Um, 
And that's a whole thing. You got the urban side and small town America. And what ended up happening is it was a show trial. Um, because William Jennings Bryan, who's one who was involved in the Presbyterian controversy and who ran for president three times, was kind of an old guard defender of Christendom. You know, that old idea of Christendom, a Christian, Christian worldview and looked on Darwinism as a fount of all kinds of evil, including World War One. He thought World War One came out of Darwinism, survival of the fittest, this whole thing. He really believed that. And he went there, he actually said in some letters and whatever, I am like Elijah against the prophets of Baal. He's going to go in and it's going to take them on. All right? Well, against him was the ACLU. They were active back then. That's one of their first major triumphs. And they hired the best trial attorney of the day, Clarence Darrow, to come and face William Jennings Bryan. And so there's an amazing conflict between the two of them. Um, the climax of the trial, it's really tragic. And the story about Brian is tragic. Brian was a great orator, but just kind of an old guy at that point. Not all that sharp, frankly, theologically. Uh, he actually ended up being a little bit of a moderate theologically. It's kind of funny as you, as you look at that. But virulently against Darwinism. And so he really looked on this as an opportunity to turn public opinion. He knew that the media outlets, which back then was radio and newspapers, were going to be all over this thing, and they were. But they were all mocking and scoffing at these redneck, you know, fundamentalists in Dayton, Tennessee. They were the laughing stock of the nation almost. H.L. Mencken, for example, a high, uh, paper editor, uh, rank unbeliever, said things like this around that time. He said, you know what a Pullman car is? It's a train car that was, you know, you'd travel around. He said, chuck an egg out of a Pullman car anywhere in the U.S. and you'll hit a fundamentalist nine times out of ten. All right, well, what is he saying? I mean, first of all, he probably liked to do that. Um, but he's saying that fundamentalists are everywhere and we need to protect ourselves against them. So there's all this kind of, it was like an arena, you know, and everyone's looking at this. T- and Darrow just made mincemeat of Brian. And the way he did it was he finagled and managed to cajole Brian into getting on the witness stand. Now, think about this. Brian is the prosecuting attorney. He's trying to convict uh, scopes of breaking the law, which was pretty easy to do. He did break the law. All right. The question is, should the law have ever been written? That was the issue. But he's a prosecuting attorney. The attorney for the defense calls the prosecuting attorney and has him sit on the witness stand as one of his witnesses. Well, he can't resist this. Brian, he wants to prove himself right, so he sits down. The problem is he really wasn't much of a Bible scholar. He wasn't ready. He hadn't studied to show himself approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who rightly divides the word of truth. He wasn't ready. And uh, Daryl sliced him to bits. I'll just read some of this. It's a great book, um, Fundamentalism in the American Culture by Marsden. Um, it says here, at this point, no doubt anything Brian, Brian said would have been seized upon by the press and labeled foolishness. Brian did, ha- did not, however, make the task especially difficult. He did a terrible job on the witness stand. He was better at oratory than debate. In the height of the proceedings, he allowed himself to be cross-examined by the greatest trial lawyer of the day. Darrow was an atheist, by the way, on the subject of the precise accuracy of the Bible. Having urged the self-evident superiority of biblical faith to infidelity before so many audiences, Brian could hardly refuse such an opportunity. I want the papers to know, he said. I'm not afraid to get on the stand in front of him and let him do his worst, he said. The result was a debacle. Darrow forced Brian into admitting that he could not answer the standard village atheist type questions regarding the literal interpretation of the Bible. Brian did not know how Eve could be created from Adam's rib, where Cain got his wife, or where the great fish came from that swallowed Jonah, or how a fish could even swallow Jonah. He said that he'd never contemplated what would happen if the earth stopped its rotation so that the sun would stand still. More importantly, Darrow uncovered Brian's ignorance of the modern literature concerning the origin of ancient religions. Incapable of dealing with many specifics, Brian was forced to admit that he'd never been much interested in examining the claims of other religions. He's constantly backpedaling, you see. And finally, there's a, there's a, a climax. He had not read critical accounts of the origins of Scripture. In a masterpiece of ridicule, Darrow brought the point home. He led Brian reluctantly to say that he basically accepted Bishop Usher's chronology as printed in many Bibles, namely that cre- creation occurred 4004 B.C., You get that by adding up the genealogies. That's where you get it. Pressing the advantage, Darrow continued, when was the flood? All right, now there's just a, it's just line by line. This is right off the court transcript. Brian, I would not attempt to fix the date. The date is fixed as suggested this morning. Darrow, but what do you think that the Bible itself says? Don't you know how it was arrived at? Brian, I never made a calculation. Darrow, a calculation from what? Brian, I could not say. See, he's intimidated now. 
Darrow, from the generations of man? Brian, I would not want to say that. Darrow, well, what do you think? Brian, I do not think about things I don't think about. <laughs> now, here's, here's the key question. Now, this, this will strike you as funny, but it ends up being one of the key questions on this whole fundamentalist modernist issue. All right, so he said, what do you think? I do not think about things I don't think about. Darrow, do you think about things you do think about? Brian, sometimes. Now, what's going on there? Do you think about things you believe? And his answer was sometimes. And that is the picture of fundamentalists. Head in the ground, not really thinking through their beliefs, afraid of bibl- or scientific truth, basically backwater people, and we just need to move on past them, on into a new age. right? Now, I'm going to play some of this and just see the way the movie does it. We take a beating in this movie. I mean, just Christians just look horrible in this movie. So, I would love to redo the uh, Scopes Monkey Trial. I really would. I would, I would enjoy facing those questions. Um, the bottom line is that this rift has continued in every denomination and only in the SBC has it been turned back. It's phenomenal. It's really remarkable. Methodism, Presbyterianism, all the mainline denominations fought and lost against mod- modernity except the SBC. And the struggle goes on to this very day. Right now. Okay. Well, we could continue on this. I want to finish with a few comments on missions. And it's a good way for us to end our... Uh, our study. I'm not going to be able to get to all the things that I've written, but I've kind of given you a pretty complete listing of things. Um, if you look in Matthew 24:14, it says, "This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come." Now you have to remember that Matthew 24:14 is a prophecy by Jesus Christ. At the time that he was seated on the rocky hill, Mount of Olives. In an insignificant part of the Roman Empire, Christ's prophetic vision predicted sweeping success for the mission that he was living and was about to purchase with his own blood. He predicted that this small band of Galilean fishermen would take a message that would conquer the world. Now, we have seen over the last nine sessions what has happened to make his word come true. Now, one of the most phenomenal things that's occurred in church history ever is the missions movement of the last 200 years. It has just exploded. It's almost like God threw us. We're in second gear and we're up in seventh gear now. How quickly uh, evangelism to the world is accelerating. It's incredible. God raised up four key leaders. William Carey, we already talked about. He said, expect great things of God. Attempt great things for God. Maybe some of these will be my heroes. Hudson Taylor, the first guy to take the gospel to the inland regions of China. He's the first one to go native, so to speak, where he looked like a Chinaman. Totally, he learned the Chinese language, became Chinese in effect, and did it to win the inland regions of China. And then Cameron Townsend, who started the Wycliffe Bible Translators. He was a missionary in South America. And one Indian came to him. He was speaking the Spanish, I think. But there were tribal languages. And the boy said, Can, do you have a Bible in my language? And he said, no, just in Spanish. He said, well, if your God's so smart, how come he can't speak my language? And that comment started wheels turning and eventually led to the Wycliffe Bible translators. Do you know how many languages there are in the world? That's too high. It's about 6,000, maybe 7,000. You know, I guess there are some sub-dialects, but think about that. We need translation. How long does it take to become fluent in a language enough to translate the whole Bible? Big work. All right. And then there's Donald McGavern who discovered the idea of people groups, unreached people groups. He realized that the word, this, you know, Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. That doesn't mean like United Nations nations. It means pantatai ethne, into all the ethnic groups. And so we have to reach these people groups within the nation of India, for example. How many people groups are there in India? Thousands and thousands. And he was a missionary in India and he saw that. Now, what is the present status? Well, there's no geographical nation on earth without a New Testament church. Think about that. That was not true 10 years ago. Isn't that incredible? When I was at MIT, we were praying for Albania, Mongolia, Algeria, some of these countries. Every country has a New Testament witness right now. God has done that. Praise the Lord. I mean, it's amazing what God has done. Um, Tremendous force for the final thrust are two-thirds world mission agencies. Koreans... Uh, Central Asians who are going as missionaries to other countries. 
There's an acceleration. It's not just Westerners, but people, Christians from all over the world are themselves crossing cultural boundaries and leading people to Christ. Unreached people groups. Get this. 1950, they estimated that there are 24,000 unreached people groups. In 1980, 17,000. 1992, 11,000. 1996, 9,000. Almost half of what it was in 1980. Incredible. Many local churches have adopted unreached people groups. I wouldn't mind seeing us do that. We're praying for the Shandong province of China. It's got about half the population of the U.S., 130 million, and there's like 10,000 Christians. I don't know. It's just some small number percentage-wise of Christians there. Uh, Amazing statistics. 3,500 new churches open worldwide every week. 28,000 additional uh, Christians in the People's Republic of China every day. 28,000 a day. 1950, when China was closed to foreign missionaries, conservative estimates at 1 million Christian Chinese, Chinese Christians. Now conservative estimates around 40 or 50 million. Church exploded. Did you ever hear the story about what happened in China? I think I've, I've told this before, about Mao Zedong and the Chinese Communist Party. What happened was he's just destroying communism. I mean, uh, 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 Christianity. Just destroying, killing Christians, literally. Um, and he gets down to a certain level. He's maybe one of the greatest political murderers of all time, gets down to a certain level and he says, we have, you know, there's no point in killing them all. We have to destroy the idea of Christianity forever. So what he did is he said, if I just kill them, it won't destroy the idea. It might spring up again. What I need to do is demoralize the Christians. I've noticed that they derive strength from being together. So I'm going to scatter them all over China. Um, my missions professor who told me the story said that Mao Zedong and the Chinese Communist Party is the greatest mission-sending agency of the 20th century. Sends them all over, and he says, we've got to humiliate them. We've got to give them jobs in which they're seen to be humble, like going from house to house collecting garbage. What a terrible job. So these Christians are sent to some place where they've never been, and they're going from house to house collecting garbage. What do you think they're doing as they go from house to house collecting garbage? They're preaching the gospel. And the church just exploded. These, these are the kind of things that God has done. We're going to have smiles on our faces for eternity hearing all the little stories of the way God showed his power and the way he mocked Satan and the way he just advanced the gospel. To me, I think this is the best way to end this nine-week look at church history is the advance, the explosion of missions because God is fulfilling his promise through Jesus Christ. He's fulfilling the advance of the gospel uh, to the ends of the earth. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.